Welcome to week three, and uh, today's sermon is titled, Your Attention, Please. We are talking about our relationship with technology. One of the things I believe technology is doing is it is stealing our attention. This morning, I want to talk about your attention and that four-second, five-second attention span that you all have, uh, which is less than the attention span of a goldfish, actually. And the attention span continues to dwindle year after year. (laughs) I want to talk about that, your dwindling attention span. Let's begin with a psalm, shall we? Psalm chapter 115, starting in verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? This is the psalmist speaking. So all the other nations are saying, where is their God? This God that they claim Yahweh, where, where, we, we don't see this God anywhere because all the other nations at the time, they had idols. You would go to the temple, there would be an idol of the God or the goddess that you were worshiping. Well, the Israelites didn't have any idols of their God because thou shalt not create an image of God. One of the uh, Ten Commandments. So the other nations, where is their God? Our God is in heaven Our God does whatever pleases him. All their gods, their idols, they're silver and gold, and they are made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but these gods cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. I mean, the psalmist is laying the smack down on all the other idols, all the other surrounding nations' gods. All their gods, they're hollow, they're lifeless, they can't speak, they can't walk, they can't go anywhere, they're stuck there in the temple. Our God goes wherever our God so desires. Our God is not confined to a temple. And then I love this final line here. Those who make them, speaking about the idols, because these are idols created by human hands, those who make these idols will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. So if these idols are hollow and lifeless, mute, then all those who made them, all those who trust in them, will become hollow, mute, confined to one location. What is this psalm about? It's about worship. This is a psalm about worship, as many of the psalms are. As I mentioned, this is a smackdown of all the other nations' gods, all these man-made, human-made idols. Then that last line, those who make them will be like them. Here's the truth about worship and us. We become what we worship. We become the very that we worship. How do we know what we're worshiping? It's expressed through what we give our time and attention to. Time is limited. We only have so much time in a day. This is true for every single one of us. We all have the same amount of time. We can say we worship this or that, but in reality, that which we give 
our most precious resource to, this limited resource, time, our attention, that which we give time and attention to, exposes that which we worship. Maybe that's a question to journal through this week. Keep a calendar for a week. Where am I spending my time? What am I constantly giving my attention to? That will reveal what you truly worship. So let's look at a couple of numbers this morning. I put an exclamation point uh, because I thought that would rouse us from our slumber. (laughs) Here's a chart that I found from the book Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. How's that for a subtitle? (laughs) Average daily smartphone screen time. We're just talking about your phone. Not total screen time, not in front of the TV or a computer, just your phone screen screen time. Average, about three hours per day. This is a chart from, uh, the book was written in 2017. The average has gone up a little bit since then. We're about three hours and 14 minutes. If you live in the Philippines, you are way over that. That's actually the nation that has uh, the largest amount of screen time on a phone per day. For us Americans, about three hours, 11 minutes, three hours, 14 minutes, that's the average. Where do you fall on that chart? And you can see where the percentages lie. Some of us are probably a little bit more than three hours per day. Uh, Some of us are probably less than three hours per day. But if you were to average up all the time that we as Americans spend on our smartphones, we're looking at about three hours per day. Let's keep going with the numbers. Let's say you are an average American. You spend three hours on your phone. That makes up about 20% of our waking time. Assuming that you sleep eight hours, again, we don't all sleep eight hours. I know some of you get by on four hours and you kind of do okay. Let's say you slept eight hours a day. You spend three hours on your cell phone. About 20% of the time that you are awake, you spend staring at a screen more than any other activity in your life. Other, of course, than sleeping. Hopefully. Hopefully. I know there's a few outliers. Hopefully you're not here in the room with us this morning. Now, if you spend, if you're average and you spend three hours a day on your cell phone, it's about 100 hours per month. (laughs) About 100 hours per month, the average American spends staring at a smartphone. If you were to do this throughout your entire life and you lived an average lifespan, does anyone want to guess what this would add up to? found this staggering. About 11 years. Three hours a day, every day throughout your entire life, you will spend 11 years of your life staring at a screen, maybe about a foot or so, a couple inches away. Remember, this is just smartphones. We're not talking about TVs or computers. We're simply talking about smartphones. Uh, if you spend less than three hours a day, obviously that would this number would come down a bit. If you happen to be one of those who spends more than three hours a day, 
you would spend more than 11 years of your life staring at a screen. Uh, there was a study done. About 78% of us underestimate our phone usage. If I were to go up to you and say, hey, how, how many hours a day, how many hours a week do you spend on your phone? 78% of you would underestimate how much time you actually spend on your phone. Then I found a few other stats. Uh, how many times do we pick up our phone throughout the day? I found a couple numbers. Somewhere between 39 and 54 times a day you pick up your phone. <laughs> if you're average. it's a lot of time. 39 to 54 times picking up that phone. Part of those 11 years. And here's the truth. These numbers continue to rise. It's really hard to pin these numbers down because as soon as you have an average, as soon as you have a number, well, then you realize, well, that number has now started to rise again, and our attention span continues to go further and further down. We're a group of people that continue to spend more and more time on our phones. Last week, uh, we showed a video with Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, who admitted in an interview that when Facebook started, Facebook consciously targeted your attention. They wanted to get you hooked. They knew what they were doing, and so they set out to steal your attention, or as we said, uh, what you give your attention to is what you worship. So essentially what Facebook and other social media platforms do is they try to capture your worship. Time, your attention, is a limited resource. If they can capture it, well, they become the very thing that we worship. And they did this by exploiting our physiology, how we are wired as humans. They exploited the most vulnerable parts of what it means to be human. They knew what they were doing, and in Sean Parker's words in the interview, they did it anyway. We knew what we were doing, yet we still went ahead anyway. Even though we didn't quite know the full extent of the harm that this could potentially cause to us, especially to our children. Now, how did they go about doing this? Let's talk about three things this morning. Talk about dopamine, cliffhangers, and clickbait. Uh, let's talk about dopamine. What exactly is dopamine? How does dopamine work? And then what does it have to do with the technologies that we use? Uh, Joe, if you can cue up that video for us, let's do, let's talk a bit about your physiology this morning. I've heard people talk about getting a dopamine hit when they get a like on social media. Yeah, but what exactly is dopamine and what is it doing to your brain? Briella Tomasetti explains how it all works. Most of us have experienced it at one point or another, the euphoric feeling when that latest Instagram selfie becomes a huge hit, like suddenly pouring in from friends, family, and followers. It just so turns out social media platforms leverage the same neural circuitry as slot machines and drugs to keep us satisfied and coming back for even more. What happens when we get a like on an Instagram feed is that we get a release of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain's reward pathway and we feel pleasure. Dopamine is a type of neurotransmitter or chemical in the brain. It also plays a major role in how we feel pleasure, helping us to strive, focus, and find things interesting. Anna Lemke, a professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Stanford University, explores that connection in her book, Dopamine Nation. Things that are addictive 
release a lot of dopamine all at once in the brain's reward pathway. And our primitive brains were not adapted for those high highs. Lemke doesn't just compare social media to an addictive drug. She believes it is one. And it's the reason why we're so glued to our smartphones. We can enter compulsive overconsumption that exactly mirrors what happens when people get addicted to drugs like cannabis or alcohol. Once that dopamine high wears off, we're often left feeling even worse than before. The universal symptoms of dopamine withdrawal include anxiety, irritability, insomnia, low self-esteem, and depression. But that next hit probably won't be as rewarding. The result is not just that we go back down to baseline levels of dopamine. We actually go below baseline levels of dopamine. So we enter a little mini deficit. Believe it or not, you may need to actually take a break from social media and get your fix in a different way. Lemke says exercise, ice water baths, or even reading a book are all good alternatives. If we can just resist the urge, then ultimately what happens is that our brain starts to regenerate our own dopamine and our own dopamine receptors and to reestablish baseline homeostasis so that we're not as mentally preoccupied with checking our phones. The result may not be instant gratification, but it'll likely be even more rewarding in the long run. Every time we go to our cell phones, it's almost as if playing slots. The same drug that is released when you are in front of one of these machines when you're addicted to drugs is released in your brain whenever you go to your phone. And the reason being is because we're looking for likes, uh, we're looking for comments, we check our mail. The whole idea of you going and checking your email and possibly receiving a new mail from someone the more unexpected and random the reward possibly is, the more dopamine gets released in your brain. We're all a bunch of addicts walking around. And these platforms knew it. They knew there was something, some way in which they were hacking into how we work, how we're wired, and they still went and did it. Who knows what the long-term effects will be on our brains? What kind of effect is this having on the generation that is growing up with a smartphone in their crib? I didn't have a smartphone until I went to college. For many of our children, they're growing up with these things. They're addicts from a very, very young Age. We see addiction as a bad thing, and yet sometimes we just simply turn a blind eye to the addiction that our smartphones cause. Let's talk about cliffhangers a little bit. Uh, how many of you have ever done a Netflix binge? <laughs> and now it's not Netflix. I mean, now there's, I mean, how many of these streaming platforms do they have? Or b before Netflix, you used to get those box sets of the TV shows. I remember Lost. Anyone else? I would watch through a season of Lost in two days, just one after the next, or Alias, right? I mean, 20, oh, 24, the rise of the cliffhanger TV shows. Here's how they work. Again, this is from that same book, Irresistible. There's episode one, and then it shows a small little box 
where cliffhanger number one is introduced. And then once you get to episode two, cliffhanger one is resolved in episode two, but then it just simply seamlessly flows right into the next episode, which then ends on another cliffhanger, which you kind of look at the time and you debate, should I go to bed? I probably should. I have that presentation tomorrow, but it's only 45 more minutes. And then three hours later, whoa, had no idea. Where did the time possibly go? These platforms keep us hooked there by using cliffhangers. And then let's talk about uh, clickbait. Here's my book, Everybody Lies, and I have a little quiz for us. I'm going to offer two different headlines, and I want you all to guess which headline was clicked more, okay? Here's the first headline. A guy in free Brady hat is only one able to foil Miley Cyrus prank. Or, same article, different headline, Pat's fan gets an eyeful for recognizing an undercover Miley Cyrus. Which one is more clickable? Exactly. 67% more clicks. Catchier headline. It catches your attention. Ooh, look at that. I, I need to know what's going on here. Now, let's do a second one. How Massachusetts helped win you the right to birth control access or how Boston University helped end crimes against chastity. Ooh, we're split. Ah, number two, 188% more clicks. Now, clickbait, as we've seen actually in, in this example right here, it works by the things that you're actually interested in. So when they find a way to sell something to you that sounds really interesting to you, well, they're, they're going to get more clicks. But the second one did get 188% more clicks. And then here's my favorite one, talking about Tom Brady and the whole deflate gate. Of course, deflated balls is a top search term in Massachusetts. Or this top Massachusetts Google search term is pretty embarrassing. Which one catches your attention? Number two, 986% more clicks. What keeps the dopamine running? Clickbait. Huh, what's this going to show me? What am I going to learn here? Ooh, that's interesting. And then the flood of those chemicals, just like when you get a new like on your Facebook account, just like when new mail pops up that you've got mail, the dopamine keeps flowing. Now, what are the dangers of this? Three dangers. Addiction. Diminished ability to experience pleasure and shallow living. We've talked a bit about addiction, that need for more and more dopamine. We got a like on our Instagram, we put the phone down, but then one of those other 50 times that we pick the phone up during the day, we're craving something. We, our, our body, that, that high that we had, we've kind of come down from that high a little bit, so we need another hit. We need something more. So we pick up that phone again, hoping, oh, okay, okay. And then when we don't get the like or the comment that we wanted, or there's no new mail there, we wait another couple of minutes, and then we pick up that phone 54 times in a day because it's unexpected. That, that reward is there, but we don't know if we're going to get it or not, so it keeps us coming back time and time again, which makes us addicts. Uh, there's a phrase that's been termed nomophobia. 
Fear of not having our mobile phone. Have you ever experienced nomophobia? <laughs> you leave the house, you're 10 minutes down the road, you reach in your back pocket, you look on, on your seat or wherever it is, the dash, wherever you keep your phone, and oh, oh, nomophobia. <laughs> it's real, it exists. And all this leads to anxiety and to a term that I came across recently, anhedonia. Has anyone ever experienced anhedonia before that you are aware of? Anhedonia is defined as the diminished ability to experience pleasure. There were studies done a couple of years back uh, talking, looking into the usage of technology uh, with teenagers. Here's what the studies discovered. And this is a quote from Jaron Lanier, referring to the 2016 study on young adults' internet usage and mental health. Addiction is associated with anhedonia, which is the lessened ability to take pleasure from life apart from what one is addicted to. So if you are addicted to something, you're craving something, you need something because you're addicted to it. You have a diminished ability to experience pleasure when you are not actually partaking of whatever it is that you are addicted to. Uh, social media addicts appear to be prone to long-term anhedonia. What this study showed is that young adults, so later teens, used social media so much they became addicted to it and they were no longer able to experience pleasure in real life. It's a scary thought. We have a generation of emerging adults who are numb to the joy of real, tangible life. We have a group of people that are growing up who have a diminished ability to experience joy in real time. One of the dangers of giving so much attention to our smartphones, to social media, is that we miss out on the joy of life that is happening right in front of us. The, the tangible things that we can actually touch and feel, the conversations with each other, a walk in the woods. Then let's talk about Another danger, shallow living. Here's a quote by Henry David Thoreau in Walden. He says, In proportion as our inward life fails, we go more constantly and desperately to the post office. Before you laugh, because many of you are like, I, post office? Who goes to a post office anymore? I have a mailbox. As our inward life fails, we go more constantly, desperately to the post office. If you own a smartphone and you're bored, what do you do? You pull your phone out and start scrolling a little bit? If you're in a social situation and you become a bit uncomfortable, what do we do? 
pull out our phones. You're in a waiting room, waiting for the doctor. As our inward life fails, as we become bored, as we become uncomfortable in a situation, we need another hit of dopamine when we need something to capture our attention, to keep us entertained, we check our mail. We check our social media feed. And what happens is we don't have to actually explore our inner landscape. There is immense depth within you. You're mysterious. As we said two weeks ago, you are a complex and mysterious individual. When you start feeling uncomfortable, instead of simply going to our phones, it's, it's normally a cue. Okay, let's dig into this a little bit. Let's figure out, okay, well, why am I feeling uncomfortable? Why did that conversation bother me a bit? Instead of just pushing it to the side so we don't have to feel that uncomfortableness, which I get it. I don't like feeling that way. I'd rather be entertained. I'd rather think about anything else but that really, really messy and awkward conversation I had two hours ago. But yet then, the life that we're living, it becomes shallow because we don't actually take the time to explore the depths of our being. So what happens when all of us just pull out the phone? Well, there's a lack of emotional understanding. Processing our emotions is healthy, it's important, it's necessary for being an adjusted adult in this world. When we no longer have to do that because we're going, as Walden said, to the post office or to our email, well, now we're all walking around unable to actually emotionally process all that is happening within us. So I want to offer you three ways to gain your attention back. Establish your rhythms, commit to something that requires deep thought, and number three, resist the urge and be bored. Hopefully resistance is not futile. First, establish your rhythms. Here's a great question to think through. When are you on and when are you off? When are you online and when are you offline? You can't always be online. Your phone cannot always be at your beck and call. There has to be a time when it's in the other room, when it's in a drawer. When you put, I use this for work all the time. I put it on do not disturb. Otherwise, you get a text and you might be working on something, but that text comes through and you think you're going to check it later, but there's that craving to know who texted you and what they said that you can't just put it out of your mind, so you're working on something, but you're not fully focused on it because you're thinking about the text and who sent it or the phone call that came through and who's trying to get a hold of you. I have a friend named Jeff, and we were trying to find a time to talk. I said, hey, what's your schedule today? Sent him an email. What's your schedule? I'll give you a call whenever. I'm pretty wide open. He said, I'm about to go into my deep work right now. Call me anytime after 3 o'clock. Jeff is an author. Uh, he's working on his next book. He shuts his phone off at 10 o'clock in the morning, I think twice a week, in order to do his deep work when he is not distracted by anything. Because multitasking is a myth. 
your brain cannot actually focus on two things at the same time. So now if you're trying to multitask, in reality what you're doing is you are bouncing back and forth from one task to the next. And whenever you get interrupted, any idea how long it takes for you to reemerge yourself back into the work you were doing? 25 minutes. You're in this flow. All of a sudden you're distracted. Oh, I'll just check this a minute. It takes you 25 minutes to get back into the place where you were before. So Jeff turns his phone off 10 o'clock. He turns it back on 3 o'clock. You can't get a hold of him. 10 to 3, two days a week because he's doing his deep work. He's doing his writing. Each week, each day, when are you on and when are you off? How are you helping yourself become a little less addicted to that screen? Uh, maybe you need to do uh, a weekend where you're unplugged. You go away to a cabin where there's no, uh, there's no Wi-Fi. Whatever you have to do, there have to be times in your life when you're on and then times when you are off. Second, commit to something that requires deep thought. <laughs> Read War and Peace. I read a book, uh, The End of Absence, and the whole premise for the book is the author had discovered that we no longer live in a world where there's any absence because there's always something to keep us entertained. He was trying to reclaim his attention. The book chronicles his journey of trying to read War and Peace and try to, ha try to actually create some more absence in his life. That's why I put War and Peace. Chances are you probably won't pick up War and Peace. I get it. I understand. But commit to something that makes you think. Is there a book that you've been wanting to read for a while? Is there something, some idea that will make you contemplate and think deeply for a while? Not just that mindless scrolling that so many of us do when we're tired, when we're bored, but can we carve out some time each day or each week for something that requires our full devoted attention. What about picking up scripture and not reading scripture with the phone right next to us, but just simply diving into a portion of scripture where there's nothing that will distract us? How often do we read our Bibles with the phone right next to us, and now we're multitasking with reading the Bible, with praying, and with answering texts? or with emails? Can you commit yourself to something that requires deep thought? This is why journaling, really, really helpful for me, where you're exploring your innards. You're exploring your inner landscape. All the things that made you uncomfortable throughout the week, the things that excited you, why did it make you feel that way? Let, let's explore this a little bit. Let's start journaling. Or what about this one? Uh, take a walk in the woods by yourself, and don't take your phone. Go for a walk in the woods for an hour. You'd be amazed at the things that will be in your head at the end of that hour. Just you and your thoughts. I get it. For many of us, that's kind of a scary thing. Uh, start with a half an hour then. <laughs> We're not alone with our thoughts because we have this with us. We have everyone else's thoughts, or we have all the other texts or emails that we have to reply to. Be alone with your thought. The woods will do this. Uh, and then a third way 
be bored. Be bored. So often we look at boredom as a bad thing. When I was growing up, I would always say, I'm bored. I'm bored. I look back on it, I wish I was bored now. We have no reason to be bored. We have countless hours of entertainment right there in our pocket. But the truth is, when we are not bored, there's no room for creativity. Creativity is sparked from boredom because it gives you freedom to explore an idea. To take a project that you've been thinking about for a while, to give it some time, to give it some attention. Lack of creativity stems from a lack of being bored. So how do we reclaim our attention? Well, be okay with being bored. Be okay with being uncomfortable so that you have a chance to actually explore and to be creative. So three ways this week to reclaim your attention and hopefully uh, get a bit longer of an attention span than those four seconds that many of us have. Do something that requires deep thought. Uh, determine your rhythms. When are you on? When are you off? And be okay with being bored. It's a good thing. That's where some of the best ideas come from.